So tonight we're continuing with what I'm calling the Introduction to Biblical Theology. And you may recall last week that we looked at two tools that we have for interpreting the Scripture and for our study of theology. They are analysis and synthesis. Analysis means to unloose, and we talked about how analyzing a text is to unloose it from its book and its, uh, its surrounding pages and pull it out and examine it, study it, try to understand the meaning of the words, the flow of the argument, and that kind of thing. And then synthesis means to put together, and then we want to put it back together in the text, in its context, and understand how it fits the larger picture. And we distinguished biblical theology from systematic theology in that systematic theology, when it synthesizes something, the, the doctrine that's been studying, it puts it into piles, it puts it into categories based on the study of doctrine. So a text or a, a doctrine is pulled out and studied and then put into the doctrine of God or the doctrine of the uh, Christ or the doctrine of spirit or whatever category. Whereas biblical theology is more concerned to put it back in the context of the flow of the story of the Bible, the history of redemption. And if you remember, I used the metaphor of a puzzle where we take out a puzzle piece and we examine it and study it and look at it, and then we put it back in the picture. No puzzle piece is intended to be a picture of its own, but rather it is intended to be put back into the larger picture so that when we step back and we have all these pieces, what we see is Christ, because the Bible is about Jesus Christ. Well, if I can change the metaphor a little bit, I would say that the story, the big capital S story of the Scripture is Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the Bible contains many multitudes of small s stories, but none of them are intended to stand on their own. They are in the Bible to get us some information to set some stage, in the Old Testament at least, for the coming of Christ. And in the New Testament, it reveals Christ to us and everything that comes after His first coming. So the entire Bible is the story of Christ. And biblical theology traces through themes and concepts and words to see how they progress and develop and culminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do over the next three lessons is to take a couple of these themes and trace them through and teach you how to study the Bible from a biblical theological perspective. And so tonight, we're going to begin with a, the theme of strangers and exile. Strangers and exile. You're probably not sure what I meant when I first wrote strangers. That's not a theme that jumps out at you from the scripture. But now that I put exile with it, you probably have a an understanding of where we're going. This is a prominent theme in the Bible. The idea of being sojourners, of being pilgrims, of being exiles is from cover to cover in the Scripture. It starts, of course, at the very beginning. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve and puts them in the Garden of Eden. And there, Adam and Eve enjoy wonderful communion with God and with each other. God would walk through them, oh, with them through the cool of the evening, the scripture teaches us. 
And that's all going well and good until the serpent comes and deceives the woman and Eve sins against God, eats of the forbidden fruit, gives to her husband Adam and he eats of the forbidden fruit. And now mankind has sinned against God. We call it the fall of mankind. And now the relationship between man and God is severed and the relationship from man to man is severed. And we find in the opening chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 3, the account of the fall of man. And there we find the punishment that God meets out upon Adam and Eve and all of mankind for Adam and Eve's sin. Of course, now Adam and Eve are going to be at odds. Adam is going to be a domineering man. Eve is not going to want to submit to her husband. Eve will experience labor pains in childbirth, and all of creation has been cursed so that Adam, as he works, is going to find his work much harder. Then at the end of Genesis 3, we find in verse 23 that God, the Lord God, sent them out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And here we have, with the first man and woman, the first occasion of exile. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. That was their home. That's where they were created. That's where they lived. And now, because of their sin, they are driven out from their homeland and forced to wander somewhere else, and an angel is placed there so they can't, cannot get back into their home. And the most significant aspect of this is they are now driven out from the tree of life and from the manifest presence of God. They are separated from God because of their sin, and now we have the first human exiles. As we read through the rest of the Old Testament, we find more and more exiles and more and more sojourners. You remember Abraham, the father of the Jews, the great patriarch to whom was given all the major blessings of the Old Testament. God comes to him in his homeland of Ur and says, I want you to pack up your things, leave your, your property, leave your, your homeland and your family, and go to the place that I will show you. And he didn't tell him where he is going. He just made a sojourner out of him, and Abraham went to the promised land and eventually landed in the land of Canaan. Well, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, and they lived in their homeland until famine hit. Then they were forced to leave their homeland and go down to Egypt because food could be found there. And we know the stories of how God and His providence had prepared the way for them by bringing Joseph down into Egypt and gave him a place and a position of prominence. He was the second in command. And then the children and offspring of Jacob were able to come down and live in Egypt, but they were in exile. They were sojourning from their homeland and they ended up being exiles for some 400 years. When we turn the page from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, 400 years have passed, and now Israel is a large group of people, millions perhaps. But they are still not in their homeland. They are slaves to the Egyptians, and the Pharaoh is getting very aggressive with them, very stern with them. They cry out to the Lord, 
course, the Lord raises up a deliverer in Moses, and Moses brings them out. And after some wandering in the wilderness because of their sin, they finally put down their roots in the promised land. They are finally back home. And when David becomes king and then Solomon becomes king, the scripture says Israel had rest. For the first time in their existence, they could exhale and take a breath and rest from all of their strife. They were home. But you probably recall, because we've covered this in many different occasions, when God established his relationship with Israel, he established a covenant with them. And the terms of the covenant were pretty severe. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 62, we read this, where God is saying to them, if you disobey, if you do not keep the terms of my covenant, here is what I will do to you. And in verse 62 he says, Then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven. Because you did not obey the Lord your God, it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you, and you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, and so on. So one of the curses God promises to Israel is, if they break the covenant, He will kill many of them in punishment, and the ones that don't die will be scattered among the peoples. And we know the story, we know the history of Israel. They didn't keep the covenant for even five minutes. While Moses is up on the hill getting the terms of the covenant in, in the uh, Ten Commandments, they're down throwing a party, bowing down to a golden calf, and that never stopped. They continued in their idolatry and rebellion, generation after generation after generation. And finally, after a period of time, the kingdom is split into the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And in 722 B.C., God finally brought the promised curses of the covenant down upon Israel when Assyria came and destroyed the northern kingdom and took these ten tribes. The, when the kingdom divided, ten tribes went with Israel. Two of them were with Judah. And the Assyrians came down and, dis, and assimilated, basically, those ten tribes into their own people. And those are the lost ten tribes of Israel. They are forever gone. And in 586, God had enough with Judah's rebellion brought Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians down and burned Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and carried away those who were living in Jerusalem and Judea into exile. And now Israel is, has been forced to leave their homeland and be part of the Babylonian kingdom. Now, they did not assimilate into the Babylonian people. They remained pure as far as their lineage goes. So that's a brief recap of the history of Israel. And so now we have the exile of Adam and Eve because of their sin and the exile of Israel because of their sin. Now at that point, the story seems quite depressing. It seems pretty sad. God has enacted the curses of the covenant and Israel is wandering around from their home. But it was not to remain that way forever. 
God sent prophet after prophet to warn Israel before the exile. After the exile, after his judgment, he sent prophets to tell them why they were in exile and to give them hope. And one of the places we find both the explanation of why and the hope is in Ezekiel chapter 39. We're in verse 21. The Lord says this, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity, because they acted treacherously against me, and I hid my face from them. So God says, I'm going to make it known to all peoples that Israel is in exile because they sinned, because they broke the covenant. And the nations are going to know this. But that's not the end of the story. In verse 25, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely in their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer." I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. So after God sentences Israel to exile, he says there's going to be a day that I will bring them back and gather them and pour out my spirit. You see the, the two promises there. They will come back, I will no longer hide my face from them, and I will pour out my spirit upon them. So then the generations continue, and Israel is, is conquered by the Greeks with Alexander the Great, and then by the Romans, and it's in that setting that Jesus appears, the Messiah comes, and Israel is excited as he performs all of his miracles. They think he's going to be the one to restore Israel to their land and reign as king over the land, but of course he dies to atone for their sins. As the New Testament tells us, that dying on the cross redeems Israel from the curse. He takes the curse upon himself, the curse of the law, the curse of God's judgment for their sin. He dies, he raises again, and then instead of setting up a kingdom on earth, he goes away and he ascends into heaven. Then as we read the New Testament scriptures, something very significant takes place in the language of the New Testament text. We find the New Testament authors picking up this theme of exile and sojourning, but it doesn't apply it to the Jews. It applies it to believers. Think about how James begins his epistle. He writes in chapter 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Now we've already seen how 
10 of the 12 tribes no longer exist. They've been assumed into pagan nations. So why does James use this term when he describes his audience that I'm writing to the 12 tribes of Israel dispersed? Because he's not talking any longer about ethnic Israel. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the new covenant people of God, but he describes them in this terminology of being dispersed in exile. If we turn over another page to the right, we find Peter's first letter. We see how he introduces this first letter of Peter, where he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, do you remember back to Ezekiel? God said, I will pour out my Spirit when I gather them back. And here, Peter is writing to sojourners and aliens who have been set apart by the Spirit. He goes on with this theme in chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Do you see the shift that has taken place in the New Testament? Where in the Old Testament, it was ethnic Israel, exiles among Gentile nations. Now the New Testament is describing the Gentiles as unbelievers and the aliens and exiles as Christians, as the church. So what about the promises, such as in Ezekiel that we read, of restoration of Israel back to the promised land? The New Testament doesn't discuss it. The New Testament is not interested any longer in a physical offspring of the tribes of Israel coming back to Jerusalem, back to Judea from exile. It's not interested any longer in ethnic Israel as opposed to ethnic Gentiles, but now it's spiritual Israel living in and among unbelieving Gentiles. What Peter is telling us, what James tells us, what the New Testament tells us repeatedly is, we are the ones in exile waiting to go home. In fact, we are told that even Father Abraham himself was not concerned with a piece of real estate in the Middle East. Hebrews chapter 11 is probably a passage familiar to you. It's called the Hall of Faith sometimes, where the writer draws attention to the greatness of the faith of the men of old and women of old and how they endured many things for the sake of God. And after describing Abraham and Sarah and their children, the writer says this in verse 13. All these died in faith without having received the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a far distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The Hebrew writer here is saying that Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob 
as they were wandering around looking for the promised land, hoping to land in the promised land, even then they were not concentrating on this earth because they regarded themselves as strangers and exiles here. He goes on, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. Abraham could have gone back to Ur, but he didn't want to. As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Jacob, and so on, who were promised the land, the promised land that we call it, and all the descendants of Abraham who were trying to seek the promised land, those who had eyes of faith to see, those who could understand what God was really promising, recognized that their home is not here. Their concern was not to live on earth. They were seeking a heavenly home, one that God Himself would build. And I love this next verse. It says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Abraham, Isaac, etc., looking for that home, that place whose builder is God Himself. Not a piece of real estate, not even the promised land of the Old Testament, but heaven. And we remember, of course, that the climax of it all in the book of Revelation finds us no longer exiles because Jesus will return and with Him will be the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And all that's imagery that doesn't make sense to us because we try to draw pictures of it and it just doesn't work because it's not intended to be something that we can graphically portray. But it is to describe for us the fact that our home will come to us and in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Garden of Eden where the tree of life exists again, there we will be and we will be restored in our relationship with God. Where the book of Revelation says, we will walk with Him, and He will be the temple, and we will dwell forevermore in His presence, undoing all that was corrupted in the Garden of Eden. And we will no longer be pilgrims, we will no longer be sojourners, but we will be with Him in the homeland for all eternity. That is what the New Testament is concerned with when it picks up the themes of strangers and exiles and applies it to our relationship to Jesus Christ. And of course, we are waiting for that day when Jesus returns. And in the meantime, the Apostle Paul tells us, when we die and are absent from the flesh, we will be with the Lord at home. And that is what we are longing for. That is what we are waiting for. And that is how this theme of strangers and exiles culminates in the New Testament with the person and the work of Christ. He has redeemed us. He has paid our atonement. He has now given us His Spirit. And someday He will come be with us or we will go be with Him and we will be forever 
at home.